This Mitzvah podcast is dedicated in loving memory of Alan, Mark, and Karen Raffi. These are three family members who tragically passed away in an airplane crash in 1979. May their souls be elevated in heaven. I have a very important announcement to make before we begin this podcast. And that is that starting on January 3rd, so next week, Monday night at 7.30 on Zoom, if you are out of town, in the Torch Center, if you happen to live in the area, we're starting a new series called Musser Masterclass. The objective is to begin 2022 in the proper foot, to make sure that we have the best year upcoming, to improve our character, to refine our character, and to use the great wisdom of Musser to guide us. If you would like to join this free seminar, it's going to begin next week, January 3rd at 7.30, and it's going to continue for 10 Mondays successively. If you want to join, it's free. Visit our website, torchweb.org. There's also a link in the description of this podcast if you'd like to join. We'd love to see you there on the Musser Masterclass. We are up to mitzvah number 87, and today we're going to do 87. And then we're going to jump to 457 and 458 and 459 and 460 and 461 and 462. And this is the mitzvah to not entice other people to do idolatry. And mitzvah number 87 is what's called a mediach, which means not to try to get the masses, the public to be enticed to do idolatry. And then mitzvah number 462 is very similar, and that's not when you entice the public, but you try to entice individuals to do idolatry. Now, in Hebrew, there are two different names for this. One's called a mediach. A mediach is someone who tries to get the public, the masses, to do idolatry. And a mesis is someone who tries to get an individual to do idolatry. Now, there are a bevy of mitzvos regarding a mesis. So 457 is a prohibition against loving him. We're told you got to love everyone, love every Jew, love your fellow man. But not the Mesas, not someone who's trying to entice others to idolatry. Mitzvah number 458 is that not only we cannot love him, we cannot cease to hate him. 459 is that we cannot save them. If you see a mesis, someone's trying to entice other people to idolatry, and they fall into the river, you can't save them. They fall off a building, you can't call the EMS, you can't do CPR, you cannot save them. You're prohibited. One of this is the Torah. The, you cannot save someone trying to entice other people to do idolatry. These people are so beyond the pale that we are not allowed to save them. Then we have mitzvah number 460, and that is in a court case. Of amesis, normally we try to find some sort of argument for acquittal, not for amesis. And finally, 461 is to not cease from seeking guilt for amesis. So again, one of the worst people in the Torah, maybe the worst, is someone tries to get other people to idolatry. And we have two versions of this. We have the individual called the Mediach, who's trying to get the masses to idolatry. And then we have the Mesis, who's trying to get individuals to do idolatry. And those are both, of course, prohibited, and both are punishable by execution. Very serious crime to try to get other people to do idolatry. So let's go through these mitzvahs and see what uh, they contain. 
So mitzvah number 87 is to not try to get the masses to go follow the idols. And the prohibition against doing that, to try to invoke the idols in front of the eyes of the masses, to get people to say, oh, let's go do idolatry together. That is prohibited even if the person calling for the worship of the idols themselves is not worshiping the idols, they would still be violating this mitzvah, the mitzvah against trying to entice other people to do idolatry. Now again, we have the breakdown of these two mitzvahs. Doing it to the masses is a mediach, and doing it to an individual is a mesis. Now there's another mitzvah, another set of mitzvahs called the ir hanidachas, which refers to a city that the entire city capitulates to do idolatry. And there are a set of mitzvos regarding what happens with that city. The whole city has to be destroyed. The whole city has to be burned down. The city can never be rebuilt. It's one of the most severe judgments that happen. You actually have to take the entire Sanhedrin, the high Supreme Court, and they must oversee the case of an Iranidachas, I believe, in our history, there is at least one opinion that this actually never happened. There was never a city that the whole city did idolatry and the whole city was burned down to the ground never to be rebuilt. But that is a dispute in the Talmud. But that is the results. In this myth, we're told that a person cannot try, cannot attempt to entice other people to do idolatry. So again, we have the Mediach trying to get the masses and the Meses trying to entice individuals. Now, there are very interesting series of laws governing the adjudication of a mesis of someone trying to entice other people to do idolatry. So first of all, you have an individual and he's gathering people and saying, oh, let's go do idolatry together. We'll do idolatry. This is very powerful idol and this is how it behaves and let's go worship it and let's go pour libations for it and bow down to it and offer incense to it. And accept it as our deity. So those people who are the recipients of this message, of this attempt at incitement, they themselves can be the witnesses. So if you have an individual that comes to two people and say, let's, let's, let's go do idolatry together. Those two people can serve as the witnesses and bring the offender to court. Moreover, Normally, to execute anyone in a Jewish court of law, you need to have witnesses, but you also need to have warning. The offender has to be warned before their crime that in the event that they go ahead with this crime, they will be brought to court and they will be executed. This is one of the reasons why it's actually very hard to execute someone in a Jewish court of law Because you need not only two witnesses, but witnesses have to warn the person almost immediately before they commit the crime. And there's only one exception. The only exception of a capital crime case where the offender does not need to be warned ahead of time is a masis. Someone tries to entice other people to do idolatry. Someone like that does not need warning. Moreover, This is the only case where entrapment is encouraged. So let's say you have someone who comes to an individual 
one person goes over to a second person and says, oh, let's go do idolatry together. So the person who is hearing this message is only one person. One person is insufficient as a unit of testimony. You need to have two witnesses. So what the person is supposed to say, he says, oh, that's a great idea. Let's get my friends involved. Come, let's let let's spread the message. And you get another person who's your confederate. And you say, come, come, repeat to, repeat to us what you said to me individually. And you try to entrap that person. But what if the criminal is a little bit more clever? He's like, oh, I'm not going to fall for this. I'm not going to speak to two people. I'm only going to speak to one person. Then what you do is you actually hide the witnesses. Witnesses go in the closet and they peep through the little hole and they listen in as the enticer tries to entice someone else. They hide behind the tree, they're in the closet, and they don't need to warn them. And again, this is the only case where we do these kinds of things. We hide the witnesses, we entrap the offender, and again, the objective is to try to execute this person. Under normal circumstances, we want to avoid capital punishment. In fact, this is something we mentioned in the past, the Talmud tells us that a Jewish court should execute once every 70 years. Meaning, it is decidedly rare for a Jewish court to execute someone for a capital crime. It doesn't happen very frequently. And the reason why is because we do whatever we can to try to provide exculpation. We turn over every stone, we interrogate the witnesses, and we drive them crazy until we find a flaw in their evidence, in their testimony, and we are able to acquit. We always favor acquittal. That is how the Jewish capital crime system works. With one exception, the Mesas. Someone who tries to get others to do idolatry, we work in the opposite fashion. We try to find guilt. We hide the witnesses. We entrap them. We try to suss out if there's people like this because these people are very dangerous. They could absolutely destroy the entire nation and therefore we have to get rid of them. And again, this is the only one that there is a focus and an effort to try to actually execute them. Now, it's interesting. There is in the Amidah prayer the Amidah prayer colloquially is called Shmona Esrei, which means 18. And the reason why is because there's 18 blessings. And therefore, we call it just simply, it's, it's the 18 blessings. The 18 benedictions of the Amidah. If you count the blessings, there's actually 19 blessings. And the reason why is because there was a 19th blessing that was added, and that's the blessing to try to curse the heretics. The people who behave like this, who try to encourage idolatry, who try to destabilize the spiritual standing of the nation, these people are the worst. And we're told that we have to have a prayer to try to say that we have to hate them and destroy them and uproot them and get rid of them. Because these people are really, really dangerous. Again, sinners... Are people, that's something that happens, you know, people are not angels, the Torah was not given to angels, and, you know, sinners exist. And we're told, even if someone's a sinner, 
they're still part of the nation. We still have to love them. We still have to try to reach out to them and try to get them to, to, get them to repent, try to get them to improve. There is still hope for them. And even if you're on your deathbed, there's still hope for you. We try to have a very positive disposition towards everyone, even the bad people, even the wicked people. And we don't pray to destroy the wicked people. And Rabbi Meir, the Talmud tells us, Rabbi Meir had bad neighbors that were wicked. And he's like, oh, I'm so sick of these terrible, wicked neighbors. I'm going to pray that they all die. And his wife said to him, no, that's, that's inappropriate. Don't pray that they die. Pray that they repent. So he's like, you know what? I'll try that. So he prays that they repent. And indeed, they repent. It worked. With regards to the heretics and the people trying to entice other people to do idolatry, these people are completely intolerable and we're supposed to hate them and we cannot love them and we have to try to find a way to, in fact, get rid of them. And again, we have all these mitzvahs. Mitzvah number 457, to not love them. Normally, we have to love our fellow. It's one of the most important mitzvahs in the Torah. Not this person. And normally, we're told that we cannot hate other people. Again, the Masis, the person trying to entice others to do idolatry, is the exception. We're told that we cannot stand idly while our brother's blood is being spilled. If you see a person in mortal danger, you are required to do whatever you can to try to save them. Unless they're a Masis. They fall into the river and they say, give me a lifeboat, give me a life, throw me a lifeline. You say, uh, uh, sorry, I'm out. And don't throw it to them. They're, they have a heart attack, not allowed to save them. Not allowed to call the, uh, the EMS. Not allowed to do the CPR. This is an evil person and we're, again, we're, this is unique. This is the only person to whom this applies, not the murderer and not the person who themselves does idolatry. Just the person who's enticing other people to do idolatry, only that person has this very severe status. Moreover, when it comes to the court, ordinarily the court is always trying to find exculpation and acquittal, and we turn over every stone. And when we start the court case, we always start the court case and say, okay, what, what do we know that will provide acquittal? What are the arguments for innocence? And once someone adopts a posture of innocence, they cannot change their vote. And once someone's, and once someone is acquitted, you cannot bring them back and try them for the same crime. So again, all the laws favor acquittal. And none of these laws apply to the enticer of idolatry. Someone like that, completely beyond the pale, if they come to court, we start off and say, what do we know that would provide guilt? And conviction. And if someone votes for innocence, they can, can change their mind. And we turn over every stone for the opposite goal, for the opposite end, to try to find guilt. If they are acquitted, but then new evidence surfaces, we can retry them to try to find them guilt. Now, there's a very interesting Rambam I saw this for the first time. I thought this was really interesting. The Ramam says that part of the judicial process 
of the masis, of the person who's enticing others to do idolatry, is that we stock the court with unmerciful people. We find like old and, and, and angry judges who just have, uh, favoritism towards guilt, you know, like a, like a crusty, crusty old man who just says, you kids today, something like that. Angry people. Talmud says that we find eunuchs, eunuchs. That's what the Ram says. You find a eunuch who's just angry at life and, uh, kind of has like no future. And just wants to spite people. Someone like that, they, these are the kinds of people that we add to the court. People who don't have a penchant for mercy. Why? Because again, our goal is to try to find these people, identify them, bring them to court, use entrapment, whatever it takes, get them to court and get them executed. Because these people are really, really, really dangerous. And again, this is the worst offender in the whole Torah. Now, the, the Talmud says something really interesting. Our sages tell us that the Masis, the person who tries to entice others to idolatry, is worse than the murderer. Why? Because a murderer, he kills you in this world. But in Olamaba, in the spiritual world, the homicide victim is unaffected. Whereas someone tries to entice others to idolatry is trying to destroy them both in this world and in the next world. Someone who has the taint of idolatry on them will forever suffer in the spiritual world. And the insight that our sages tell us is that actually in this world, they suffer as well. Someone tries to entice others to idolatry is destroying the other person both in this world and in the spiritual world. In the spiritual world, of course, because they're doing idolatry and their soul is forever sullied as a result. But even in this world, even in this world, this is one of the, the grand insights that actually the Torah does not tell us, oh, why don't you just forfeit this world? Live an ascetic and monastic life. Suffer here and you'll be rewarded the next world. That is not the bargain of the Torah. The Torah doesn't believe that we should suffer here. Or that's an ideal. The Torah does not lionize and idealize suffering in this world. Quite the contrary. Our world here, we should enjoy. Why would the Almighty make us suffer? But what's real enjoyment? When you live an upstanding life, when you invest in your future, when you're not just chasing the cheap and empty calories of hedonistic pleasure, when you're living for a real purpose, when your life has meaning, that's a much deeper pleasure and that's a much higher level of living than any other form. So the Torah does not want us to just suffer here as if that's an ideal so that we benefit in the spiritual world. No, we have to enjoy this world as well. How can you not enjoy this world? What an amazing life. You have the Almighty giving you all these great gifts. And he's giving the opportunity to do great things. How can you not enjoy this world? And someone tries to entice others to do idolatry. They are making them suffer both in this world and in the next world. 
Now, the Sefer Chinuch, the book that we are using to guide us through the mitzvos, he has a, a nice little piece here where he talks about why there are so many mitzvos that relate to idolatry. Why are there so many commandments that orient around idolatry? And he tells us there are 44 different places in the Torah that the Torah warns us against idolatry. So he gives us a principle. You know, we would think it's because, well, God doesn't want us to worship other gods. He's selfish. Of course, that's not true. God is unchanged by our worship of him or our abandonment of him. But in his magnanimity and benevolence, he gave us the ability to live a good life, to live a proper life, to live an enriching and meaningful life, to live a life that will not only benefit us here, but will benefit us for eternity. And as a result, he gives us the best advice. And the best advice is to make a person live a good life and make themselves worthy of blessing, worthy of continuity, worthy of eternity. And the way to do that is to cleave to the source of all blessing, is to cleave to the source of all goodness, is to cleave to the Almighty. Doing that will benefit you in this world and it will redound to your favor for all eternity in the next world. What happens when someone rejects God? Someone's walking away from the source of life. Someone is walking away from the source of blessing. Someone is abandoning goodness. Someone's exposing themselves to the opposite of blessing. And therefore the Almighty, in His benevolence, is trying to encourage us, don't make the silly mistake of walking away from all goodness. Again, not because he needs it or because he is changed with us worshiping him, but he's even just good advice. You want God to love you. You definitely don't want God to hate you. And as a part of this idea is that the people that are the most destructive forces in the world are the ones who are trying to get other people to spiritually kill themselves. These people are so dangerous, they are so bad and so awful, that they must be stopped at any costs. And again, the entire system of Jewish jurisprudence is changed in order to make sure that we can rid ourselves of these horrible menaces. The commentators tell us that if you look at Abraham, Abraham is dealing with a problematic son, Ishmael. And what does he do to Ishmael? He banishes his own son from his house. The reason why he does that is because Sarah saw Ishmael doing idolatry and encouraging idolatry. And again, someone like that is so bad and so unconscionable that you have to get rid of this force. I want to point out just the positive of this. If you think about it, we're told in this mitzvah that the worst thing a person can do is try to influence other people to do bad. Influence is so powerful that if you influence others to do bad, 
You are a persona non grata. You're not welcome in good society. You're dangerous. And we do whatever we can to try to cripple you, to try to kneecap you, to get rid of you. We have to hate you. We can't love you. We have to turn over every legal stone to try to execute you. That's for someone who tries to influence others to do bad. But what if someone tries to influence other people to do good? Imagine how powerful it is when you are a force for influencing others to do good. Can you imagine how powerful that is? What kind of merits you have? We turn over the whole world and the whole system to try to stop someone trying to influence others to do bad. That same system will be manipulated in someone's favor when they try to get other people to do good. The merits of someone who tries to influence others for good are unmatched by any others to the same degree that the demerits of someone trying to influence others to do bad are unmatched by any villain. Someone who tries to get others to do good is beloved by God. Moreover, our sages tell us that the only way to earn enough merits to end up in Olam Abba is if you spread that blessing onward. This is a scary idea. It's found in very reputable sources. If a person says, I'm going to be personally righteous myself, and they do whatever they need to do to be a good person, by the Torah standards, amazing. Our sages tell us that that alone might not be sufficient because you're only one person. But what if you get two people or three people or four people or 400 people or 4,000 people to do good? Even if you get only one penny from a billion people, that's more you know, than $100,000. If you get a small little bit of influence spread out over a large portion of population, that accrues all to your benefit. And we're told in our sages, that's the only way to actually earn enough merits to get on the to be a positive influence. So again, we have this Mesis, the Mediach, these people trying to entice other people to do bad things. It's a terrible thing, worse than a murderer. Really scary stuff. But by extension, we can learn about how powerful and how influential someone who tries to get other people to do good is and how great are their merits. May we all, in fact, influence others for good and have the tremendous blessing redound to our favor. I thank you for listening. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.